my phone. My phone is passing around somewhere. Just uh, get everybody to sign on your table and then pass it to another table. Uh, we're sort of not techie, but just uh, put it nice on the stage next to your name. So um, tonight we have the privilege of Brent Sharon with us. So it's always good. We're going to have Brent share for the first hour. We'll do our cohorts. And how many were not here for the first, or when we did cohorts last last time? So we got two, three. Okay, great. We'll work that out on start our next hour. So, Brent, it's all you, bro. All right. Today we are talking in this class about the power of buy-in and how to create buy-in. So buy-in, uh, I'm going to explain what that means, but basically we're looking at like, how do you create commitment? How do you instill a commitment in, uh, in your small group? You know, when you go to build a small group next fall, this is one of the things that is essential to, to a small group community. You have to have people that are committed. And to create that is sometimes very challenging. You know, if you think about our culture, our culture is not uh, on friendly terms with commitment. <laughs> that word commitment is scary to a lot of people. And you know, there's just a lot of things that are gonna be working against us next fall as we're going out and seeking to build commitment. But I wanna talk about how to do it. I wanna dispel some myths that you might have about it that are gonna help build your faith so that you can expect it to happen. And we're gonna just look at just some practical ways as well of how do you create buy-in or commitment. So, you know, buy-in, we use that word, it's, it's used by businesses, it's used by NFL teams, it's used by the military. You know, how do you create buy-in? How do you get people to be totally into this thing that you're doing? You know, when we think about buy-in for the outpost, I'm thinking about, you know, someone who says, you know, get me the t-shirt, they're there at large group every week, they're at small group every week, faithfully, committed to every meeting, they're going on mission trips with outposts, you know, just all these things. That's, that's a bought-in person. That's someone that we're looking for. And all of you in this room, to uh, the most extent, really, are bought-in, right? You're bought-into the outpost, you're bought-into the vision, you're buying into it, you're continuing to, as you learn about it, but you're bought-in. You're bought-in enough that you would commit to this class and to hopefully one day eventually becoming a small group leader and doing for other students what's been done for you. So you're trying to create commitment, and you are committed. That's the first step. You are committed. And that's, you know, that's one of the biggest things we're gonna talk about tonight. How do you create commitment? It really all comes back to you and, and how much you have bought it to the vision. So before we get to that, I want to uh, start off with just a, a real key conviction. Okay, I'll, I'm gonna use a whiteboard tonight. I hope that's okay. We go old school. Um, so I also just encourage you all to take notes. Please take notes because you know, you're going to be going out this fall, building your smart group, and be like, man, what? There's something really good that you know Brent shared. <laughs> Hopefully, one at least one of the good things Brent shared, and you're like, I don't remember what it was. So take notes tonight. I'm, I really believe in the, the things I'm, I'm imparting to you. Like they really do work, and so I want you guys to take this away. I want you to really apply it. So basically, the first conviction that we want to start off with is this idea 
we believe this wholeheartedly in Chi Alpha that discipleship is not for advanced Christians. Let me repeat that. Discipleship is not for advanced Christians or believers. Meaning, it's not like you have been following Jesus for X amount of years and now you're starting to get into the deeper things of your faith and you're thinking about, hey, you know, discipleship, that sounds kind of like the next level. Well, that's not really the way that Jesus portrayed discipleship. Discipleship in, in Scripture is always a commandment given really to, from the get-go, you know, from the beginning. Jesus calls the original disciples to become fishers of men. And so that's really a commandment that's given to, to all believers. You know, there's no special elite class of believers that are given this task of discipleship. And even now, I encourage you all to look for ways to be discipling. You know, you don't have to wait until next fall when you're officially titled the small group leader to do this. You know, it's something that you can be doing right now. I know Luke, uh, for example, is meeting with some guys, and they go climbing, and then they, they study the word together. You know, and Luke just started doing that. He initiated that with another uh, believer, and they've been doing that about every week. And, you know, that's, that's a great example of, like, you know, you guys can be reaching out right now to roommates, to your classmates. You can have one-on-ones. You can do these things even now as you're learning how to do that for the future. But discipleship is not for advanced Christians. And because we believe this, it means we, we have the conviction that anyone can make disciples. Okay, anyone. It does not matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. It doesn't matter how talented you are, how charismatic you are. It doesn't matter um, how much you know about the Lord. That's an amazing thing, right? Like you can, you can actually know comparatively less to somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a number of years and yet still be effective in making disciples. Um, because what you're doing when you, when you make disciples is Essentially this, you're getting people to buy in to Jesus. You're getting people to commit themselves and their lives to Jesus. You're getting them to bind their lives to Jesus. And you do that through your life. Okay? So as committed followers of Christ yourselves, you're getting people to come alongside you and to commit their lives to Christ as well. And you're getting them to commit to you. That's the hard part. You know, it's like getting people to commit to you. Getting, getting a community of people together who have different backgrounds, different upbringings. You know, you're going to meet students next fall who um, are wildly different. You're going to be meeting all kinds of students during Welcome Week and during our outreach in the beginning of the semester. And they're going to come from totally different backgrounds. And you're going to be combining these people into a group called a small group. And that small group, hopefully, if it goes well, and if it starts to really take off, these people are going to love each other. And yet they're going to have very little in common. It's a really radical thing that we're attempting to do. When you make disciples, it's not, it's not like some social club that could be done by a secular group on campus. It, it really requires the power of the Holy Spirit to bind people together that have nothing else in common except for their learning to follow Jesus. And it's amazing when that happens. You know, Jesus, his 12 disciples, you look at the 12 they're very, very different people. Um, we understand from the scriptures that one of them was a zealot, meaning he had taken an oath at one point in his life to, to kill 
Jewish person who betrayed the nation of Israel. Okay, they have that guy, Simon the Zealot, next to Matthew, the tax collector, who is seen as a traitor to the nation of Israel. And they're together in small group. Okay? Jesus, that's the power of Jesus. That's how valuable, that's how attractive Jesus is. He's able to bind people together in ways that nothing else in the world can. Okay? So that's the good news. The good news is that we're, what we're doing, what we're calling people to, when we call them to be committed, is we're calling them to commit themselves to the most worthy, lovely, worthwhile ambition of their entire life. Like, we have nothing better to offer people but Jesus. We have nothing else greater to give them. We're not salesmen, you know, giving a pitch for some inferior product we know is defective. We're trying to, you know, trick people into believing in Jesus. We're, we're literally, we need to be convinced of this too, that we're selling people, we're not just selling them, but we're, 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 we're getting people to buy into Jesus, who is the most attractive person in the entire universe. Okay, that makes all the difference. We're getting people to fall in love with Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's the first conviction that we need to understand and believe. That means, if that's true, that everyone is capable of commitment. Everyone is capable of commitment. And I want to look now at some myths that surround commitment in our culture. First of all, one of the first myths is this idea that our culture um, just will never be committed. Culture will not commit. Okay. Um, so this idea that culture, like our, our, the university campus, students, 18-year-olds are never going to be committed. Like that might be a common thought. That might be something that you might be tempted to think next fall when you're reaching out to these students and they're not responding or they're flaky or they come to one small group and you never see them again. That's a common experience, but I don't want you to fall into the, the trap of believing this myth that people cannot be committed. In fact, we are expecting the majority of our community and outposts to be committed. We expect that. We don't expect just the 10%. We expect there to be faithful, uh, available, teachable students attending our larger meetings regularly. We expect them to come to small group regularly. We expect them to go to one-on-ones. We expect that, not just of you guys, not just of leaders, but we expect that for your small groups. And I want you to expect that. I want that to be not just something that you hope for optimistically, but to be a real expectation in your heart. You're not going to let people off the hook. Okay? You, need to, you need to really resolve in your heart that the word of God is true. That's really what it comes down to. What, what we're really dealing with here is we have the facts of you know, our, the culture that is. You know, of course, the culture that we live in today is not favorable to commitment. That's just a fact. And the generation that's coming up in the campus, and that, that will be students next year even, are, are further and further removed from valuing uh, commitment in the way that we want to see it. Okay? They're, they're growing up in, the, in such a way that they've been taught and they've been um, allowed to sort of pick and choose what works best for them. And unfortunately, this culture has infiltrated the church. You know, we see this mindset carrying into the church, people will come into a church and say, what does this church have for me? Or um, what will I get out of this church? Or sometimes people will say, you know, what's in it for my kids? But still essentially the same question. You know, it's like, 
what's in it for me. Basically, I, I'll like it as long as it meets my needs. Okay, that, that's, that's, would it be safe to say that's essentially what most of our culture acts like? Like, if it, if it works for me. We even do that with truth. You know, if it's true for you, that's great. You know, just tailor, it's almost like a salad bar. Just take the things you like and don't, don't grab the things you don't like. You know? That's not the kind of commitment we're looking for. When we're, we're looking for buy-in to your small groups, we're looking for people that, that love your small group, that love it, like they can't wait for small group. They can't wait to spend time with you. They, in fact, they, they, they can't stop spending time with you. <laughs> I want you all to have the problem of, of there are people in your life that you're just tired of having them around all the time. <laughs> I want that problem for you guys, and we expect that. Why? Because biblically, Jesus he knew, he knew that the culture of his day even wasn't very committal, and yet he expected that, and he called people to that. So Jesus built this into his plan of salvation, that people would be committed followers of him. If, if that was an essential part of salvation for the world, it must be true that people can commit. Now, I want you to think of it this way. People do not have a commitment problem. Nobody has a commitment problem. People have a commitment to themselves problem. Okay, that's essentially it. No one has a commitment problem. You will not encounter a single person who isn't committed to anything. That's not the problem. The root issue, the real problem, is that people are committed to the wrong things. They're committed highly to themselves, right? Like I mentioned, does it meet my needs? Does it feel good? Am I satisfied by it? And if we try to meet people on that term, alcoholists will always fall short. Like, we're never going to offer people a more satisfactory thrill all the time, right? We're not going to, if they're trying to decide between large group on Thursday night and, you know, going to a concert in Denver, and if they're not, if they're, if they're like nominal Christians, you know, they're, they're like, man, I, of course they're going to choose a concert. Okay? And we're not, if we were operating in the wrong mindset, we might think, well, we just need to up our worship game in Alphos. You know, we need to get six or seven more electric guitars in here, and we'll, we'll make it a better concert than anyone could imagine. And then they'll, then they'll all start coming. You know, but it doesn't work like that. Right? It doesn't work like that. So don't think that for your small groups. Don't get in that trap of like, man, I need to make my small group like this super cool, edgy thing that, you know, like, They've never experienced anything like this before. That's not, that totally misses the point. And I want to reiterate, the thing that we're drawing people to is Jesus. Jesus is, he just is that attractive. He is that lovely. You don't need to worry so much about being the coolest whatever to attract people to him, okay? Commit, what we need to expect, we just need to call people to commitment. You cannot make commitments for people, but you can call them to be committed. You cannot, you cannot make commitments for people, but you can call them to be committed. Well, the second myth I want to look at is uh, they don't have time. This is totally not true. Totally not true. It is, it's funny because sometimes, you know, a resource group will, uh, sometimes, you know, small group leaders will say, like, hey, I'm, I'm just too busy. And, uh, I haven't had time, you know, to really invest. And, and I have a friend, uh, Duncan, he was a resource leader, 
and he had a small group leader who was complaining about this lack of time. And Duncan was like, okay, let's go through your schedule and let's just see how much time you have. Let's just look at it objectively. So he had this small group leader write down his whole schedule, when he slept, when he ate, uh, when he was in class, when he did homework, when he worked, uh, and then when he had time to, to recreate and have fun. Even after writing down all that, he had hours in his week that were just blank. <laughs> like nothing was happening in them. So it's like really wild how our perception really gets warped and we think like, oh, I don't have time. You know? But the, the truth is like, we always have time for things that are most important to us. We always do. We always have time for the things that matter to us. And so when you are encountering students and they're like, oh, I'm just too busy, I don't, I don't have time for that, you need to keep in mind that the, the problem is not their time, it's, a, it's that they don't value. They don't value Jesus. And they don't value, they don't value the things that you value yet. They're not there yet. Now the good news is there is a way to get them there. But you need to keep in mind that this is a myth. Thirdly, the last myth I want to look at, and this one gets everyone, is I cannot, um, I cannot get other people to commit or to buy in. I cannot get others to buy in. And that's that's really where you know. Our fears, our insecurities start to come out. You'll start to experience that next fall. You know, when you're reaching out and you're putting yourself on the line and you're really trying to get people to buy in, you're getting students, girls or guys, to buy in to your group, you're putting yourself out there. You know, and there's a, there, there's a piece of you that's in smart. There's a piece of you every time that you interact with people. You know, deep down, like, their, their rejection, it, it comes across like very personal sometimes. And that, that's part of it. But I want you to all have this faith. I want you all to have this, this understanding before next fall that you can create committed followers of Jesus. You can do it. Every single one of you. Like I said, discipleship, not for advanced believers, not for certain personality types. It's not just going to be the ones that are gregarious and outgoing that are going to create a, a, a solid, committed Smoker, it is going to be you, and this is how it's going to happen. How bought in are you? How bought in are you? The more you buy in, the more that you sell out to the vision of Outpost, to your resource group, to the things that are being asked of you, the more you go above and beyond the expectations, the more that will reciprocate in your small groups. So we call this the rule of spiritual reciprocity. The rule of spiritual reciprocity. This means that what you do, and we, I don't know if we have like a theology worked out for this, we've just found this to be true. We've, over and over we found this to be true. The rule of spiritual reciprocity is what you do spiritually is replicated in them. Good and bad. So if you, what you do in moderation, they will do in excess. That's a chiapism. What you do in moderation, they will do in excess. So bad habits, sometimes you'll start to see students in your small groups like picking up your bad habits. They're like, you know, maybe you're a procrastinator, big time. 
and you'll start to see your small groups procrastinating on everything. They weren't like that, but because they're hanging out with you so much, and they're spending so much time with you, and you're investing so much in them, they're going to take on your qualities. They really will. That's the, that, when discipleship is working, when it's thriving the way that we envision it, that is going to happen. Now, the good news is it also applies to the good. Good things spiritually are repl replicated so that when you submit to your resource leader and you do things because your resource leader is asking you to do them, even if you don't agree, guess what will happen? Your small group members, you're going to suddenly find that they trust you more and they listen to you. You know, and the more that you do that, the more that you, you surrender to the authority that's been placed over you, the more you'll see yourself being given authority in other people's lives. The more you're vulnerable with your resource group and your resource leader, the more you open up and you really tell what's going on, the more vulnerable your small group's going to be with you. It always works like that. We have this guy, um, a friend of mine, Chris, he was an intern one year, and he decided that year he was going to really submit to the intern director. He was really going to do everything the intern director said. He was not going to complain. He was not going to secretly disagree in his heart and try to do something else. He was just going to totally listen to, to his authority. And he found that that year was the most fruitful year he had here at CSU in making disciples. It's, it's a direct result of this rule, spiritual reciprocity. So if we've gotten rid of the myths, you know, we've dispelled the myths that people won't commit, they will. That people don't have time, they do. They just don't value yet what we value. And thirdly, that I can't do it, you know, you can. When you, when you dispel those myths in your mind, in your heart, then you're set to go call people to be bought in. You're set to go call people to be committed followers of Jesus. Now, I want to look at how we do that. Before we do that, though, a little bit more about, um, yeah, let me think here. I want to do this. Yeah, so let's get into some practicals. First of all, I want you guys to understand this. This is another conviction we have in Outpost. It's called the expulsive power of a new affection. Has anyone heard of that? If you've read, if you've read C.S. Lewis, he talks about it. The expulsive power of a new affection. It comes from a pastor in Scotland. He wrote an article, and I, I recommend you all find this article and read it. But it basically, the idea is that there's two ways you can get somebody to commit to something new. You know, if you're trying to get somebody to leave behind their old life and follow Jesus, or you have a, a nominal believer that's they're lukewarm, they're just they're kind of living for God but not really, and you're trying to get them to commit to God, there's two ways you can go about that. One is you can show them how lame their life is without God. <laughs> like you can be like, man. This is why living for the world sucks. Or the second way, which is way more effective, 
you present something more valuable and attractive than what they've already had. And like a dog that's, that has a bone in its mouth, that you want, if you want to get the bone out of the dog's mouth, you can either try to yank that bone out, or you can present it as steak. And the bone will fall out of the dog's mouth by the dog's choice, right? Because the steak is more appealing than the bone. That's the, that's the idea of, of, when we're talking about buy-in, that's how it happens. There's an expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive meaning it pushes out other affections, lesser affections. And we're so constituted as people, as human beings, that we would rather pursue something so insignificant than have nothing to pursue at all. This is why people will give their whole lives to the most trivial pursuits imaginable, rather than have nothing to pursue. Because if there's a vacuum, in a person's heart, that's torture to us. We're so designed that we're, we're made to pursue God. We're made to, to long for Him, right? But because people don't have God in their lives, they pursue these lesser things. But they're still better than nothing. The idea of just emptying yourself completely, Buddhism, by the way, is so antithetical to human nature. It is so against what actually we are as human beings. It is, not, it is utterly impractical. In, in the very least. Now, the explosive power of a new affection means when you present, you begin to present Christ to people, they, they begin to um, see how lovely and attractive he is. That's, that's really your job as small group leaders, right? Isn't that good news? Like, you guys are just telling people and showing them how good Jesus is. That's your job. That's, that's what discipleship looks like in small group, getting people to fall in love with Jesus. Because as they're falling in love with Jesus, they're going to buy in. And they're, as they're experiencing the, the transformative power of falling in love with Jesus, they're going to remember those times that they had in small group meetings, and they had at large group, and they had, you know, at, just at your house when you weren't doing any particular meeting, but you were just hanging out and you had a, a great conversation about the Lord. And this is why, once again, that third myth that I can't do it is so wrong because. The truth is, if you are in love with Jesus, if you're passionately in love with him, you can't help but talk about him, right? You can't help but want to show people how great he is and how wonderful he is. Like, you can't help that. It'd be, it'd be crazy for you to keep that inside. You can't do it, even if you try. You're like, there's something in you that's like, i got to just tell people. And as you fall in love with Jesus more and more, and, and you will through this process of becoming smart with Jesus, as you fall in love with Jesus more and more, that will just lead to people falling in love with Jesus as well. Now, there's another article I want to, I don't think I can assign this to you guys. If, if I could, I would. But basically, uh, this article is by a writer, an author named F.W. Borum. And he, he was an Australian pastor. He wrote a lot of amazing books that are very obscure and hard to find. So we love them. Um, and uh, in this one particular book, he has an article considered by some of our friends to be his best article. It's called The Passionate Few. And in this article, he's talking about how do, he first starts by looking at Shakespeare. And he says, why is it that Shakespeare is still considered the greatest literary genius of all time in the English language? Like, why is Shakespeare, to this day, he's still the pinnacle, like nobody has exceeded Shakespeare. Why is that? And his argument is that it, there's a passionate few, there's a group of people who are so passionately in love with Shakespeare that they continue to perpetuate the idea that Shakespeare is the best. It's the passionate few 
which actually gives Shakespeare his fame and glory today. That, that there are people, there's a group of people out there that when they read Shakespeare, they're like, man, this is the best thing ever. I can never read anything better than this. Every page, they, they, they can't get enough of it. They, and then they can't stop talking about it. And then they can't stop talking to each other about it. And so I want to read an excerpt from this about the passionate few. He says, passion is articulate. These passionate people being passionate about the same things naturally become gregarious. How can they help talking to one another of those qualities that they adore in common? They feel the magnetism of each other's presence. They seek each other's society. And they delight in the luxury of pouring into each other's ears the passages of which they themselves are most enamored. If one sees another in a tram car or a railway train, he straightaway takes a seat by his side. And before they know where they are, they are gossiping about Juliet or Rosaline or Jessica or Lady Macbeth. Nor do they talk merely to one another. They talk Shakespeare to those who have no affection for Shakespeare. At first, such casual listeners are frigidly unimpressed, but when first one and then another of the passionate few tell them of the ceaseless pleasure and the enormous profit that they derive from the Shakespearean researches, they are startled out of their carelessness, pull themselves together, and resolve to make the acquaintance of the bard for themselves. No man, Mr. Bennett confesses, can prove to his fellow man that Shakespeare is a great artist. But he can speak of Shakespeare in so winsome and persuasive a way that he picks the curiosity and whets the appetite of his indifferent companion. If this man, that companion reasons with himself, if this man finds such a fountain of felicity in the dramas of Shakespeare, I must surely be missing something. And so on his way home from business, he buys a copy of Antony and Cleopatra or King Lear, or after an evening meal, takes his wife to see the Merchant of Venice or Hamlet, and so for the rest of his life, he becomes an ardent Shakespearean. Thus the passionate few is augmented. Moreover, he cannot keep his newly found enjoyment to himself. He talks of it at the office, at the club, and at the fireside. His friends and cronies contract the contagion of his enthusiasm, and thus the passionate few becomes less few. The apathetic multitude becomes less multitudinous, and Shakespeare comes to his own. So basically the idea there is like, because these people are just, they're so in love with Shakespeare, it, it, that's, that's really what gets other people into Shakespeare. Like he said, you can't prove that Shakespeare is the greatest writer of all time. That's so subjective, it would be silly to try that. But what you can do is be so passionate about Shakespeare that people can't help but fall in love with him. And he applies this to Christ. And at the end of the article he says, Enjoying Christ to this extent, the passionate few will naturally and instinctively gravitate toward each other. The herd instinct will be sublimated by spirituality. The relish with which Shakespeareans discuss Shakespeare will be pale and spectral gratification compared with the burning zest with which these happy people will speak to each other of their Lord. The house in which they meet will be a heavenly banquet. Nothing will be more delightful to each than to tell the others of his own joyous experience of the Savior's grace and to hear in return of the sublime satisfaction that those others have found in drinking at the same celestial streams. And what more natural, what more inevitable than that each of these so infected should seize any opportunity of communicating the secret of his gladness to those whose enthusiasm has never been kindled. To them as yet Christ is as a root out of dry ground, having neither form nor comeliness, nor any beauty that they should desire him. But when a dear and trusted friend tells them with shining face and glowing tongue of all that Christ has meant to him, the surprised listener is profoundly impressed. As a natural consequence, he seeks the Savior for himself, and through years of happy pilgrimage, finds him the chiefest among 10,000 and the altogether lovely. That's what happens when you're in love with Jesus and you just can't help but talk about it with each other. Like, when we're, that, that was the thing that drew me to Jesus. When I was around the, the guys that, that pioneered the outpost, the team, they were always talking about Jesus. Like, always. 
And they were so affectionate in the way that talks about the Lord. There was never this cold theological, like, you know, debate of doctrine. That would have really turned me off. It was like, man, this is what I'm learning about God, and I'm freaking out about it. Like, have, you know, and then, and then they'd freak out together. And then, you know, I'd be watching. I was just, I was totally apathetic. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care anything about Christ. I wanted nothing to do with him. I wanted to run away from him. But their passion was contagious. And it caught me in such a way that I wanted to be around them. Like, I really wanted to be around them. And they had these conversations, although I wasn't personally interested in Christ. I wanted to be in the midst of that passion that they had for him. And that kindled a love for Jesus in my heart. So that when I started following Jesus, man, every time we were together, I would find them and we would talk about Jesus. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop talking about him. And that's, that's the way that small group should be. That's the way it, you need to create and cultivate this environment where you're just lifting up Jesus. Where you're just showing how lovely he is. You're lifting him up. You're showing uh, who he is. You're showing not just what he's done for us, that's great, but, but just who he is. Like, isn't it amazing that he's, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, this eternal being, the uncreated, un the causeless cause of all things. That he can be known and is knowable through the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, th there's just infinite knowledge to be transmitted and shared and to be treasured and adored about Jesus. So that's how buy-in happens through this process of an expulsive power of new affection. They whet their appetites for Jesus and they start to experience him. They start to get a taste for something so much better than they've ever had before. And like that dog, they're going to drop that bone. They're going to drop the wolf. And worldliness and all the pleasures of the world, they're going to pale in comparison to Jesus. Now, how many of you um, have ever seen the uh, like Holy Ghost movies or uh, Father of Lights, those kind of documentaries? In one of them, there's a, they interview the bass guitarist for the band Korn. Oh, okay. And I love his testimony because it, it really illustrates his principle because he said he was living in the depths of sin. Man, he was just strung out day after day. If he wasn't drunk, he was high on cocaine, you know, just living in just complete sin. And one day, I don't know, somebody like shared the gospel with him and told him that the burden uh, of Jesus is light, that his yoke is, is easy and his burden is light. And he looked up this verse in the Bible and he was, he was, he opened the word of God and he said, God, basically like, if that's true, like I want to know it. I want to know you. If this is true, that your burden is easy, because he was so burdened by, by just living in the world that long, you know, just took such a toll on him physically, spiritually, emotionally. He was like, Jesus, if, if this is true, I want this. And the Lord basically encountered him in that moment. He like said he felt the presence of God, and it was literally a better high than he had ever felt in his entire life. It was a better high. It was literally the most thrilling thing that had ever happened to him. And when that happened, when the presence of God came in his heart, it just filled him, right? It wasn't just a taste. It like filled his whole heart. His whole life was filled with the presence of Jesus. He never wanted to go back. And then from then on, the base of Paris has been bought into Jesus. He's sold out for Jesus. He's a Jesus lover, right? That's how that happens. That's the, that's the way small group works. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Like, that's exciting, right? That, that you get to be part of that. You get to be part of, of this expulsive power of a new affection working itself out in, in people who do not care at all about Jesus right now.
know, love, one of the things I'm, that is so cool to me about love in the Bible is that love is described more as faithfulness than kindness. Like the meaning of the Hebrew word for love, actually, really, if you translate it, it's hard to translate it directly into English, but if you translate it, if you were to pick one word to describe it, it would be faithfulness. I think that is the coolest thing ever. And you can, be, you can be kind without being faithful, right? Like, I think that's actually our culture. Like, people will smile at you as you pass by, but they won't have a conversation with you, much less get to know you. Okay? There's, a, there's a real fear of faithfulness, a fear of binding yourself to someone. There's a fear of missing out. But biblical love, biblical love is faithful. Okay? I want to read a passage of scripture from a uh, translation of the Bible that's actually a paraphrase. But I think that this paraphrase really nails it. It's from the Living Translation. So you guys probably don't have this translation, but I'm going to... It's from 1 Corinthians 13. says this is verse 7 if you love someone you will be loyal to him no matter what the cost you will always believe in him always expect the best of him and always stand your ground defending him I want to read that again I've seen this so many if you love someone you will be loyal to him no matter what the cost you will always believe in him Always expect the best of him and always stand your ground in defending him. Now let me ask you all a question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love your parents? According to this definition, do you love your small group leader? Do you love your small group? And then ask yourself this next fall as you build a small group and you're pursuing people. Do I love them? Because love is it's faithful. Love is committed. Love is it's stubborn. It's like a I will not let go of you kind of thing. It's, it will it just takes hold of someone's life and says, I'm not gonna give up on you. I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna let you down. Over my dead body will you live a stupid selfish life. That's a Kyophism. You can take that, don't you don't have to say that to people, but think it in your head. <laughs> Over my dead body will you live a stupid selfish life. Okay, that's stubborn, steadfast, loyal love. That's what creates buy-in. When you love someone like that, they're gonna, they just can't help but wonder what in the world is wrong with you. Why, do you. why do you think that way? Why do you act that way? That's the way the Lord is, right? Sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a marriage vow. If you go to a wedding, what are the vows? For better or for worse? For richer, for poor, for sickness and in health? Right? It's, it's this idea that like, things could get really bad. Why, do you, why are you talking about worse on the wedding day? Like, it's the happiest day, huge celebration. You're, you're talking about things go bad. If things get worse, you know, if things are in the gutter, I'm still going to stay with you? That's covenant relationship. That's, that's the kind of relationship God has with us. It's covenant. It's like, I'm not going anywhere. For better or for worse, I'm going to stick with you. That's the kind of love that Jesus has. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus, 
We gotta have that same love. We gotta love just like that. We're gonna have covenantal love. It's not contractual. Contractual love is, is the love of our day. Hey, if you if you you know make me feel good today, that's great. But tomorrow, who knows? You know, there's a Rolling Stones song um, that basically says, you know, these girls, you know, they're 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 here today, but tomorrow they're yesterday's news. You know, and that's how the world treats people like trash, literally like trash, like you're just a newspaper that is spoken. That's contractual love. That, that'd be like if you were at the wedding and they said, hey, uh, babe, if, if, you, if you do the lawn you know, faithfully and you, you're willing to, to do all the dishes every night, then I will love you forever. That's contractual. You might as well grab your wedding gift and walk out of there because that relationship is not going to last. Right? It's a contract. That, that's, that's the way most people approach everything. Right? Friendships are, are, are brought into those terms. Hey, if, if, you know, if you if you make me feel great, then yeah, I'll be your friend. If, if, if you are into the same things as me, I'll be your friend. But if we, the moment we disagree or we have an argument, I'm out. That's that's the way most people operate. But as Christ followers, we have been we've been bound by this new love. Like Jesus has shown us this covenantal love, and, we're, and we need to be in love with covenant love. You need to love it. You need to you need to, you need to find this kind of love attractive. Because covenantal love is by far harder than contractual love. It is much harder to stick with someone in, in a thick and thin. Because it requires a constant vulnerability. It requires uh, potentially rejected, being rejected again and again. It, it puts yourself at risk of pain. Because when you invest in something, you truly invest in someone's life, and they, they, don't, they don't buy in, and they don't want to be part of your life, that's painful. It's very painful. But it's worth it because when you love people like this, that's the only way it's going to produce faithful love. That's the only way. Faithful love is the only way to produce faithful love. It will not happen any other way. And so again, as you are bought in and you're sold out to Jesus, you will create sold out followers of Christ. You will. That will happen. So do you love Now, another thing that has just really practically helped me in creating buy-in is you, you need to, so don't ask too much too soon, okay? Don't, you know, say like you, you find this really sweet believer, this, this kid that's just come out of high school, and they, they seem to have a, a legit walk with God. And you're like, man, this is great. This is, this is going to be my armor bear. And you start telling, you sit him down, you're like, hey, man, I really think you could, like, help me build my small group. I'm, you know, I'm going to give you responsibility. They're like, whoa, like, I'm, I'm out, you know. <laughs> I did not sign up for this. You don't want to, I wouldn't even use the term armor bear. If you, if, you know, don't, don't do that. Just, just if you find a believer that's, that seems like they're going to be committed, don't sell them too quickly on commitment. Don't try to pull them in and be like, man, you need to, you need to do this, this, and this. You know, don't do that, right? You, you want to win people to commitment. So you do that by first getting them to, if they, if they will commit to a low level of commitment initially, if they will buy in to 
Well, how's it start? I mean, you meet them, you get them to buy into going to one of our house parties. They're like, yeah, I think I trust you enough to go off campus to some random house. And you know, you, that's, that's low level commitment. <laughs> like they, that's a low level trust that you got there. Okay, then once you got that, you can work up to, hey, let's hang out again. Let's meet up and let's get to know each other, just you and me. Okay, that's another low level commitment. And then, you know, once you get to that point, you're like, hey, I have this thing called small group. I want to invite you to it. You know, and I really think that if you were there, it would make a huge difference. And I, I really value what you have to say, and I want to get to know you better, but I want, I want you to do this with the community. I want you to do it with a group of people. We want you to do this together. That's another, that's another low-level commitment, right? And then, you know, once, once they've come to small group, then, you know, you can, you can ask them to come again. And if they're starting to come faithfully, you can ask them to large group. If they're coming faithfully to that, then, you know, we ask them to do what you got to do. You see? It's always, it builds like that. So don't ask for too much too soon, because that will scare people away. You got to think of it like fishing. Right? Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. It's, it's like fishing. If, if, you, if you're fishing in an overfished pond, you're not going to use the, the biggest, brightest uh, bait or the, the biggest, brightest lure. Because <laughs> the fish are wary. They're wary of that. And our culture is wary of commitment. So you're going you're gonna to ask for a low level of commitment. And when that has been satisfying, when they found that, when they went to that house party, it was unlike anything they expected, right? They, they're like, man, you guys are not what I thought Christians were like. Or they're, <laughs> yeah, believers and unbelievers will say that. They'll, they'll, they'll experience it. And, and when they come to someone for the first time, and you're just sharing your stories with each other, and they're able to be vulnerable with someone for the first time, that, that seems like they're not going to just run away. When they start to experience this low-level commitment and the satisfaction of the, the sweetness of knowing Jesus in that low-level commitment, they're going to want the big commitment. They're going to want it. They're going to want to be bought in. They're going to want it. Okay. Now, I want to use. I want to finish by just using an illustration from Jesus, because Jesus, Jesus did this, right? Jesus. If you, if you ever have any questions about how to lead this, how to lead a small group, just read the Gospels. So Jesus, when he was getting his twelve to buy in, he started with five. So with five guys: John, his brother James. Andrew, his brother Simon, and Nathaniel. And these five guys actually happened to be, a couple of them were followers already of John. They were already disciples, which is really cool. He just said, hey, come follow me. But how did Jesus get these guys, these five men, to quit their jobs, to quit the family business, leave behind their parents, and just go with him? How did he do that? Have you ever thought that? Like when you're reading the gospel, you're like, man, that must be nice. You're going to feel that next fall when you're building a small group. You're like, man, I wish I could just tell some freshmen, hey, come follow me. We're going, we're going to go follow Jesus. You know, I, wish, I wish it were that easy, right? Well, the thing is, it wasn't like that for Jesus. If you put the Gospels in context and you, you pair them together, the four accounts, you see a timeline take place where Jesus actually interacts with the disciples multiple times, those five, and they experience Jesus in different occasions. At one point, you know, there's this interesting moment where they've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything and Jesus tells them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat and suddenly the, the net is breaking, you know, the boat is sinking because the catch is so great. And Peter is like, away from me for I'm a sinful man because he realizes that Jesus is a holy guy. And he doesn't really know who Jesus is yet, but he knows 
Jesus is powerful, and he's a man of God. And so Peter's like, oh, like, I'm a sinner, and get away from, you know. Yeah, so there's these interactions that the disciples have with Jesus before Jesus gives them this big ask to follow him. It's really interesting because if you look in Matthew 419, can anyone look that up for me? And then if someone could find Luke 510. And whoever gets that first, go ahead and read Matthew. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. And then the next verse. And so also, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, we'll be catching men. Yeah. And when they had brought their... That's good. So yeah, you see, actually, there's two different calls there. It's not a repetition of the same moment. There's two different moments being highlighted there. One, earlier on, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. That's when they were still fishing. They were still going to their trade. They were still doing their day job. And they were hanging out with Jesus at night, probably. And they were starting to see Jesus, who he was. And, I mean, can you imagine just spending an evening with Jesus? Like, even if he wasn't healing the sick or preaching, just, just hanging out with Jesus for an evening, what that would do to you. You'd go back to your, your day job, and you'd be like, this stinks. Literally. I mean, they were fishermen, so. <laughs> but they'd be like, man, I'm done. Like, I don't want this anymore. And then, you, and then in Luke 5, or 5.10, it says, from now on. And see, that's the second call, and Jesus says, okay, guys, time to leave the behind. And they were like, we're all too ready. We're all too ready. So it wasn't just the first moment that Jesus met them. He said, hey, quit your jobs and come follow me. That wasn't the case. We know from the Gospels that it actually was repeated exposure to Jesus, experiences and encounters that they have with him that were winning them into embodying. And then later down the road, it's not for a while later, that Jesus starts introducing the talk about the, the radical cost of discipleship. That wasn't up front. It's kind of interesting. Jesus didn't, he wasn't like, okay, guys, let me sit you down. Let me tell you, Peter, you're going you're to be crucified for me. <laughs> You're gonna, you know, he doesn't, that doesn't happen until, like, there's a relationship. There's a history between Jesus and Peter. He doesn't, he doesn't tell, isn't that good that Jesus, like, you know, he knows what we can handle. And, but I want you guys to, to realize this is, you can do this. You can create buy-in. And I want you to focus your assignment, if you will, until through next fall. I mean, for the rest of your life, really, is to continue being bought in. The more you are bought in, the more you're sold out, the more they will be for uh, I guess it's time for a break. Is there any questions really quick before we end that time? All right. Hello. So um, we're going to talk about, yeah, spiritual lineage, transgenerational discipleship. And, you know, we have these core majors in Chi Alpha, and transgenerational discipleship is definitely a major. I mean, discipleship is what we're all about. Um, creating a legacy here at CNCU is something that we want to see happen in each of you. And you guys wouldn't be here right now if we didn't think you guys had the potential to do that, to, oh, yeah. to have a lineage here at CSU that will last, you know, forever. And, you know, it's cool. Like, I really feel like, I don't know, we might not know 
all that will encompass your time here and how it will affect other people. But I really feel like in heaven, Jesus will tell you and show you and be like, because of your life, because of what you've done here at CSU, all of these people are here with, you know, alongside you in this. And it's going to be so sweet to see just that you're bringing a ton of people with you in heaven. You know, it's going to be so sweet. And so that's why I just fully, full-heartedly believe in transgenerational discipleship and in creating a legacy here at CSU. So we're going to talk about it. So um, I'll share a little bit about myself first and my lineage. So uh, this is a, like a small, small portion of my lineage because Rachel discipled so many and Amanda, me and Riley. And so it's, it, it, the arrows go so many ways, but this is just a simple one. But um, so Rachel came to San Houston State where I went to school and she um, had some church background, but not really, was super nominal. And um, be, door move-ins met this girl, Katie, got connected, went into her small group, um, heard really about the gospel for the first time, got radically saved just in small group. Her life completely changed, and um, her small group leader asked her to do this, what you guys are doing right now, to go through LTC. And she says, you know what? What God does in you, he wants to do through you. And she full-heartedly believed that. And so she did LTC and became a small group leader. And then through another connection with one of her friends from back home, she met Amanda. And Amanda um, also grew up in church, but um, she looked at college as a way to escape that, um, as a way to just live her life without her parents looking at her life closely. And so um, she just really turned away from the Lord her freshman and sophomore year. And then Rachel like just consistently pursued her for two years, two years, just consistently pursued her. And then finally, um, Amanda decided to commit to her small group, went to her small group, went to large group, had an amazing experience with God, got right with God, and said, you know what? What God does in you, he wants to do through you. Went through LTC, and I'm so grateful she did because my sophomore year, I met Amanda. And um, she loved me so much, had so much patience and grace for me, and um, she was the person that showed me the person Jesus, like for the first time. And um, I will never forget the conversations we had in her house and, and, you know, in coffee shops. And I mean, I just hold those conversations so dear to my heart because they really shaped who I am today. And so much of my convictions and my values and, and who I am in Jesus is because of her life. Like, I just wanted to be so much like her. And um, I'm so grateful that um, she decided to walk with Jesus and that she decided to be a small group leader because it gave me the opportunity to come to know the Lord, which I think the Lord did. And um, I just got so radically changed that I couldn't imagine doing anything else but that for the rest of my life, which is why I'm doing ministry vocationally. But um, I did the same thing. I was like, you know what? What God does in you, he wants to do through you, and I'm going to do LTC. And so I did LTC not knowing what I was doing. I was so clueless. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to love people and pursue people and trust God, just radically trust God that he can do something with me. And sure enough, um, I met Riley, who, um, you know, had no Christian background, pretty wild, and um, she was kind of similar to my testimony, and 
um, I just loved her so much. Like, the Lord just gave me just so much love for her. And she was in my small group and just came every week, and I don't know why. And I just shared with her the gospel, shared with her about Jesus. And us as a small group just came around her and just loved her and did as much as we could for her. And sure enough, she one night she had a vision of God. And, and, and he was, like, in this tunnel, and he, like, told her to follow him, and she decided to. And so now she's a Christian, loves Jesus, did LTC, became a small group leader, replicated, and she has a lineage that goes on even right now at St. Houston State. So good. And so, I mean, you can just see just in my small box right here the power. And so today, or earlier today, I made a little one, and I wish I had more space, but I don't. <laughs> But isn't this so cool? It's not even like everyone. I mean, I won't find a picture of you, but it could be right here. Um, but anyways, so Abby Nicholas, who, um, Josh Nicholas, uh, he spoke for our missions week on, a couple weeks ago. Um, that's his wife, Abby. And she came to CSU after they got married. And she had Annalisa in her small group, who a lot of you guys know because she's still kind of around, but she's an alumni now. And she had an amazing small group and discipled people like Christy and McKinley and Megan, who um, I'm so grateful for because they're still around today. And um, Megan, you know, pursued Jesse. Now Jesse knows the Lord. Um, McKinley, you know, reached out to Natalie, who we're so grateful for because she's here now. Um, you know, Christy pursued Ashley, who pursued Kinley and Juana, and there could be so many girls right here. But I just included you guys. Um, Abby, yeah, pursued this girl, Katie Cam, who's an alumni with, um, with us, and she lives in Hawaii now. But she had a great small group and um, had Jennifer Talley in her small group, and we all know and love Jennifer Talley. And, I mean, her, she, Jennifer could have a ton of arrows, too. All these people. And so this is, I mean, this is small, too, you know, because Katie could have arrows. You know, Ashley has a ton of arrows. Christy has arrows. McKinley, Megan. Annalisa has a ton. And so this is just so small compared to like what really has happened. Isn't that so amazing? Just, yeah, so good. just such a small picture of the impact that you can make in just a few years. It's, it's amazing. So um, yeah, one scripture we talk about a lot is um, 2 Timothy 2.2. And you're going to memorize this, and it's going to be on your test. You should write it down. You'll be like, I'm going to memorize this. Um, That's true. <laughs> And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So what, why we love this scripture is because it represents four generations just in this small passage. So Paul wrote this letter and is talking to Timothy. So we have Paul, we have Timothy, and then um, we have... You know, he says, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people, so that's three, who will also be qualified to teach others. So just in that small verse, you have um, Paul is saying to reach out to these generations, you know. So I just think that's so amazing. So, yes, let's continue. So why transformational Transformational discipleship. Um, so the first point I'm going to make is to bear fruit unknown. Kind of like what I said earlier. Um, you know, you're going to uh, invest in so many people. You know, Welcome Week, you're going to just, um, 
you know, try and meet as many people as possible. You're gonna invite as many people as possible into your um, small group. You're gonna pour into as many people as you can. Some people might stick, some people might not. <laughs> and no fault by you, they just, you know, people sometimes want it, and some people don't want it. And you just pray that they do, you know, because Jesus is the best, you know, and you, you try, to, try to say that as much as you can. But um, what's cool is, you know, like what I said, you won't always see the fruit that you're going to have, you know. And what's cool about, like, if you, you know, the lineage that I just showed earlier, Abby has no idea that, I'm actually in the center, it's pretty cool. But Abby has no idea what legacy she has here, you know. She has no idea that um, just what she did in the few years that she was here has actually made a complete difference in our ministry. And um, you guys are going to have that same thing, you know. Um, I think about, like, my campus pastor back at San Houston State, Eli Gotro, who is um, an amazing, amazing man of God. And he formed Kayatha how it is today, you know, with having small groups, having large group be like it is, um, and small group leaders, and discipleship being everything. He was the guy that created that, and he was the guy that that made the team that pioneered CSU so passionate about discipleship. And um, Eli has done that for so many people. And, you know, America and the world is changed because of what he's done, you know. And I just can't wait for Eli to realize in heaven, like, how much of an impact he's made, you know. But he has no idea. And what's hard about that is... Um, you know, like, who's going to take the credit, <laughs> you know? Like, there's really no credit that can be taken a lot of times, you know? And um, you have to be okay with that, you know? And um, what's amazing is we don't need people to, um, you know, study the Bible better or pray better. You know, those are all important, but we, we want to raise up people who know how to lead, who know how to lead better. Like that's that's what you're doing. You're pouring into people who will be leaders, who will be qualified to teach other people. You know that we don't just. I mean, of course, we want people to know the Lord. We want people to be Christians. Like, of course, we do. But we don't just want to stop there. You know, we want to raise other leaders. And so, I want you guys to be passionate about that. Like, I want to raise up someone that will change the world. That will change CSU. And what's amazing is the freshmen that you'll meet next year, they have that potential. They have four years here to, to really live for the Lord, and you can teach them that. And there's just so much potential. And so I want you guys to be excited about that. Like, wow, we can teach people how to be leaders, not just leaders career-wise, but leaders for the Lord. You know, leaders, they, they'll know how to win people to Jesus and to, and to create more leaders in them. You know, it's going to go on and on and on, and that's, that's just so exciting. Okay, so point two, um, yeah, to make leaders go further than us. So I think about um, in the Bible, I don't know if you guys have read like Elijah and Elijah. And um, Elijah was an amazing prophet, amazing, did amazing things for God. And Elijah, when Elijah was going to leave the earth, um, he asked for a double portion of the spirit. Um, and what's amazing is that God answered that, and he got a double portion, and he did twice as many things as Elijah did. And um, I'm sure Elijah was, like, so proud to see Elisha do amazing things, do double what 
what he did, you know. And so we're training people to lead better than us, you know. What's, what's awesome about you guys is you guys are going to know the successes and failures, you know. Y'all are going to know the mistakes um, and the regrets, you know, and the things that didn't work for you, but now you know better. You're going to be able to teach people how to lead better because of your experience, you know. So you can really guide people in a lot of wisdom because you guys will have so much experience, you know, and just be like, hey, you know, let's reach out to people together and let me show you how it's done, you know, and I, I think that's really cool. So you always want to teach people um, how to go further than you. And also, um, one thing, like, you just want to think about is, like, what are your convictions? I don't know if you guys have ever done like a like a value test. Like, what are what are your values? You know, sometimes they have like those lists, and you can like circle your values. And I thought that was interesting. Anyways, so like, what are your values? What are your convictions? Um, and what's crazy is those convictions and those values will be passed down. You know, um, I think about Amanda, and she had um, a passion for missions. Like, she just loved like the idea of the whole world being reached for Jesus. She just loved mission trips, and she was so excited about missions. And what's crazy is she never, like, asked me, like, hey, do you want to be a missionary, or have you ever thought about that? But she just, like, lived her life and just always talked about missions. And what's hilarious is the girls that were in my small group were all doing ministry, and were all doing or have done missions, like, for a long, a long time. <laughs> like, I think three of them are in Egypt, one of them is in Jordan, and I was in Russia, but now I'm here. And so it's really amazing. Um, like, she didn't even ask us to do that, but we just did it because we had that value of, of missions because of her life. And so what convictions do you have? You know, the good and the bad can be discipled in people. So, um, you know, think about, like, what exactly you want to pour into people, you know, um, and, and make that a big deal. It's, like, funny, the big things and the little things get discipled in, like, I remember my small group leader used to always make peanut chicken for a small group. I don't know why. And then when I was in small group, I would make peanut chicken for the <laughs> And then Riley made peanut chicken for her girls in her small group. And I was like, this is crazy. It's like discipleship food. But anyways. <laughs> so anyways. That's pretty good. Um... Okay. Um, do I have any more after that, or is that it? You have a lot. I do? You have like three. Okay, yes. Um, so we kind of talked about this, but what legacy will you leave? So the de definition of inheritance is a trait or legacy you are leaving to another generation. So think about, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but like, what legacy do I want to leave on this earth? Like, if there is one thing that I want to leave an impression on before I die. <laughs> you know, what, what do you want it to be? And um, yeah, just like really think about that. Like, what do you want to be all about? You know, I, I want to be all about um, how you can be passionate for Jesus. You don't have to be boring. You know, you can be so fun and exciting and joyful and passionate uh, for Jesus. You know, like I want, I want to disciple people and I want to leave people being more passionate for Jesus than they did before they knew me. You know, that's what I want to leave a legacy for on this earth. And what do you guys want to do? So, yeah. By a lot, I know one word. Okay, yes. <laughs> so how do you know you have a transformed person? 
you know, when you disciple someone, a, an amazing thing happens. You know, when I came to know the Lord, I felt like I just had this unspeakable amount of gratitude for Amanda. And I still do. I mean, I, I love her. And <laughs> I just am so grateful for, um, yeah, for everything she did for me and, and how she led me to know the Lord. And I only pray that I can do that for other people. And that's how you know that someone has been transformed. Like, the result of a transformed heart is gratitude. Like, that's what it is. So you will see that in the people that you're pouring into, into your, the people that you're discipling. You know, there might be some people that are like, oh, thank you for, you know, spending time with me. But then there are going to be people that are going to be like, oh, my goodness, how could I not live without you? Like, how did I function without you, you know? And there's just going to be people who are going to be so incredibly grateful for what you've done because you've, tra you've helped them. Um, know the Lord, and the Lord has transformed their heart, and they're just so grateful for you, and that is, like, the greatest experience ever, you know, like, I remember Riley, after she came to know the Lord, like, wrote this long letter to me, like, thanking me for not giving up on her, and I was just, like, in tears, because I was like, this is what it's about, you know, this is, this is it, you know, this is the biggest joy, this is more of a joy that I could experience than anything else, you know, it was just so sweet, and that's how you'll know someone has changed, you know. And even, like, to you guys here in this room, if you guys have not expressed gratitude to your leaders, like, please do that. Please. Because I know all of your leaders, and they're all so great. And they've all sacrificed so much time and um, resources and effort. I mean, they really pray for all of you and really, really care about each of your lives. So if you haven't, please, please tell them how grateful you are for everything that they've done, and that would be the sweetest thing for them to hear. So yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Is that it? Okay, cool. And then that's your assignment. <coughs> I said four or five, but I guess three. You go as far back as you want. It'll be really sweet. And yeah, and contact those leaders. Like, um, you know, the staff, I know a lot of the older staff, we can help you guys with your lineage and contacting them if you want. Um, but yeah, find them on Facebook. Get their number, call them, message them, and just be like, hey, because of the, your time here at CSU, I am here today, and I just want to thank you. And that will mean so much to them. So please do that, and um, yeah, write them a note or something. It will be awesome. So yeah, I think that's it. Any, anything else? Any questions? All right, I'm going to pray. Um, Jesus, thank you for this time today, Lord. Lord, I thank you for every, every person in this room, Jesus. I thank you that there is just potential, God, so much potential in this room. I can just feel it, Lord. And I just thank you that you want to use them, God. Thank you that you've spoken to them. Thank you that you've woken up their hearts, that they want to live for you, that they want to sacrifice time and effort to, to be with you and to further your kingdom, Jesus. And I just pray, God, would you light that fire, God? Light that fire of, of um, just excitement and joy and hunger to, to just go further, God, to go more and more deeper and further in you, Jesus. And Lord, um, I pray over this group right now, Lord, that they would leave a legacy here at CSU, Jesus, that it would be um, so powerful and so strong that they could come back here 10 years from now and their name would still be talked about because of the lineage that they've left here on this campus, Lord. Lord, would you uh, 
give them the, um, the steadfastness, God, to keep with this vision, God, of, of transformational discipleship, Jesus. Would you uh, make that a major in their hearts? Would you make that one of the biggest values to them, Jesus? And Lord, thank you for all of the transformation that has happened in this room. Thank you for the um, salvation, God, that you've given us, the, the holiness that you've given us, God. Thank you that um, we always have the joy of our salvation, God. And may we say what God does in you, he wants to do through you. What God does in me, he wants to do through me. May we just um, let that resonate with us. May we just carry that with us for the rest of the semester and, and on to next year, Jesus. May they just remember that, Jesus. In your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you, guys.